Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk about Japan with Ian Burney. A career foreign service officer, Ian served as our ambassador to Japan from 2016 to 2021. In 2014, he received the Prime Minister's Outstanding Achievement Award, the highest recognition for senior public servants in Canada for his leadership in advancing Canada's trade agenda. Now retired from the Foreign Service, he serves on several corporate boards. For listeners, Ian has written the chapter on Canada-Japan relations in the Indo-Pacific New Strategies for Canadian Engagement with a Critical Region. It's a collection of prescriptive essays edited by Fen Hampson, who's been on this podcast, along with Goldie Hyder, who's also been on this podcast, and Tina Park, and published by Sutherland House. And you can get it through Amazon. I looked at it earlier today. Ian argues that we need to pay more attention to Japan because of its geopolitical weight and influence and its centrality to economic supply chains, as well as to regional security. Like Canada, Japan has a regional security alliance with the United States. Ian reminds us that despite demographic challenges, Japan Japan is a nation of the old. Japan is still the world's third largest economy, nearly a third again larger than fourth place Germany. Its companies sit on vast pools of capital, estimated at over US $6 trillion, and they're scouring the globe for investment opportunities. Ian also reminds us that Japan is our fourth largest export market, our top source of foreign investment from Asia, and its investment typically come with a long-term horizon and without the political baggage that we sometimes see from other places. With the free and open Indo-Pacific, or FOAP as we sometimes put it, vision that is at the heart of Japanese foreign policy, Japan is a force for stability, democracy, and a rules-based international order. For Canada, closer ties with Japan will be essential, but it will mean upping our game because Canada's engagement with Japan has typically lacked the sense of purpose and priority. We bring to the table abundant natural resources and technological strengths. Success, Ian argues, will depend on three factors. First, engaging at the highest level with ideas, resources, and a vision that will elevate the relationship to that of a strategic partnership. Second, linking our goals to Japanese priorities, notably its security preoccupations. And third, enlisting non-government actors to raise their game. So let's get started. Ian, you described our approach to the relationship as being on being on autopilot. We've now got the new Indo-Pacific strategy. Do you see that autopilot approach changing? Well, first, let me say, Colin, it's good to be with you. I think this is a, a tremendously important topic. Uh, and so I'm uh, very pleased to have this opportunity to contribute to the ongoing dialogue. Uh, and I was, of course, relieved to see at long last the Indo-Pacific uh, strategy being released. Um, I'm not sure it will get us all the way that we need to get, uh, especially with Japan, but I guess what I would start by saying is that, you know, the relationship between Canada and Japan is substantial. It has uh, deep uh, roots in history. Uh, it tends to be quite amicable uh, and it runs to our mutual benefit. Yeah, fundamentally, we're aligned, uh, you know, on values and interests. Uh, I think there's a fairly deep reservoir of goodwill between uh, the peoples of both countries. And the economic and trade relationship is quite significant and largely irritant-free, which is no mean feat, right, in today's world. Um, but, and I'll come to the but now, uh, the relationship suffers from uh, what I would call chronic complacency uh, and neglect. And, and part of the issue is that for both countries, the United States, uh, but also China, uh, frankly, consume almost all of the bandwidth. Uh, so, you know, on the Japanese side, Canada tends to be managed off the edges of a North American desk, which in practice spends 98% of its time on the United States. And on our side, uh, Japan tends to be run from North Asia bureaus that focus primarily on China. And when you consider also the fact that the relationship doesn't typically have, you know, huge problems, it tends to drift along on autopilot, with frankly, very little engagement from the top. So it's positive in tone, but it's superficial and it underperforms uh, relative to uh, the potential. The, the primary mechanisms that we have to engage with Japan, whether on the economic or the security side, are at lower levels uh, than with most of our peers who have them at the political level, not so in our case. The trade relationship, which as I indicated before, is, is uh, quite significant, 
has also been flat for quite some time. Uh, and you know, even where we do make valuable contributions, like in our military deployments, we seem to go out of our way to downplay them, not give them the profile that they need. And, and I see this as indicative of a broad, broader problem that Canada has in terms of its relative disengagement from the region. You know, we're only finally now rolling out an Indo-Pacific strategy that we've been talking about for five years. Uh, and the other uh, point that needs to be mentioned is that our prime minister is seldom in the region other than for the obligatory summits um, every year. So I think if you look at uh, the region as a whole, it's hard for me to see a time when, when Canada was actually less visible and less relevant than we seem to be today. So the Indo-Pacific strategy, I think, uh, is helpful. The narrative is right. I think it provides uh, um, a refreshing and up-to-date uh, perspective on China that's more in keeping with uh, the threat that China now poses to democracies, not least our own. Um, but if you kind of look at the substance of the policy that's laid out, uh, there aren't really any signature initiatives. There aren't really any new uh, engagement activities proposed with the key partners, including Japan. Uh, all that's listed for Japan are frankly ongoing activities. And the total spend adds up to less than 500 million bucks a year over five years, which as you know, is a rounding error in terms of government spending. So uh, you know, having laid out the case for the region's great importance and calling for a generational whole of society approach, um, I thought it was underwhelming in terms of, um, of the actual substance, but it does provide a good analytical framework, and I hope that uh, that the government follows up with the commitment and, and resources and attention that I think that the region deserves, and Japan has to be a central part of it. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but that's it in a nutshell. No, no, Ian, it's a substantive response, and I guess part of what I was, um, I, I like you, I thought I was delighted to see the strategy and I thought that there was a lot, a lot of effort has gone into it. You can read through and the fact that there was annexes with, with costing money attached. Again, I, I agree with you, not enough money, but at least uh, there, is, there is something there. And uh, I looked at it as providing a framework, which we then will build upon, which is always the case with these kind of documents uh, that you don't want them too long to make them unreadable, but you don't want them too short so I saw this as sort of, you've got a strategy, although what did surprise me a little bit was that China and India each get their own section, whereas Japan gets lumped in with North Asia, which as you point out within the Bureau, uh, Korea, Taiwan and others are there, but Japan, given its economic weight and its geostrategic importance, I would have thought a decade earlier would have had its own chapter but I wondered, and, and, and you're closer to this, is this sort of reflection of, of, of where we now put Japan as a kind of lump it in with North Asia, but put the emphasis, we see China as a threat, as you correctly point out, and India as the kind of future for us, notwithstanding all the challenges that go with India, and the fact that, as, as you pointed out, our trading relationship with Japan is relatively irritant-free, and thanks to CPTP, we've, we've achieved that free trade uh, Grail, that golden, uh, the the holy grail that we were seeking seeking for so long, and thanks to Prime Minister Abe, in effect, uh, we were able to to get that. Yeah, so I, I hope you're right. I hope that uh, you know, looking at this as the glass being half full, that this is a starting point. As I say, I think it does provide at least a coherent analytical framework for uh, you know Canada to engage the region with. In terms of relative priority, I think the entire region has been underweight in Canada's uh, approach to the world. Uh, you mean by remain, that Indo-Pacific or North Asia? The Indo-Pacific region as a whole, okay. uh, I think, is still underweight in our overall engagement globally. Uh, you know, and obviously uh, with war in Europe, uh, this is distracting attention. But, you know, we're a G7 country. We need to be able to operate in more than one theater at a time. You know, I think not just for governments, but our business community remains overwhelmingly focused on the United States. And to the extent that they've thought about the Indo-Pacific, it's been mostly China. So I think within the Indo-Pacific, yes, uh, Japan has been and remains underweight. Uh, uh, this is the third largest economy in the world. We should be uh, engaging in a much more substantive way across the board. Uh, I, the, the potential is there. As I say, it tends to get kind of lost in the shuffle of other priorities. Uh, but you know, it starts by um, showing up. Uh, and you know, the point I, I alluded to earlier, yeah, the prime minister and it's not all the prime minister, but you know, nothing, as you, you know, as well as I do, nothing focuses the mind as much as a, as a PM visit to a region and nothing conveys uh, as important a signal of, of interest. 
And, you know, it must be said, the Prime Minister did not make a bilateral visit to Japan in the five years I was there as ambassador. He hasn't actually made one since his first year in office, where he added day to the, the G7 summit that was held uh, in Japan in 2016. And his next, next opportunity will be the G7 summit uh, next year in Japan. So, you know, the, the argument that I would make is that adding a day or two on a G7 summit every seven years is just woefully inadequate for a relationship that's important. No, and I think, Ian, why don't you tell listeners, because I, I completely agree with you, particularly in the case of the Indo-Pacific and Asians, they want to see the, the prime minister. In, in I've felt in, in Europe, in the United States, you don't have to have the prime minister present, but I've, certainly my observation about Asia, given the complicity between business and governments, they really do want to see the principles, and that starts with the prime minister, but ministers. And as you point out, and the record is very clear on this, we have been episodic in a part of its minority governments, part of its geography and distances. But given the, the, the government, this is the most coherent strategy I've seen this government come up with in a foreign policy context. Uh, and they, they put weight on the Indo-Pacific. If for it to succeed, I, I would completely concur with you that it is going to require frequent visits, starting with the prime minister. Yeah, I, I frankly, I think, you know, uh, visits by from leaders is important uh, everywhere. But as you correctly point out, uh, nowhere uh, do personal relationships matter more than in the Indo-Pacific. So it is absolutely critical there. And, you know, this is anecdotal, but I, I, I was told recently that roughly during the time span that I was in, in Japan, the prime minister was in France eight times. So uh, it's, it's not like, um, you know, we don't have uh, leader level travel. It's just that, you know, the Indo-Pacific has not featured very prominently. Uh, and part of it, I'll say in tongue in cheek, is that we may need to pass the hat and buy him a better plane that doesn't have to refuel six times on the way over to Asia. Uh, that in itself is a bomb, an abomination. So hopefully we can, we can get past that. But no, showing up is critical. And it's not just um, uh, the political level, and it's not, of course, just the prime minister. Uh, I, I would say our business leaders are also um, uh, invisible in the region. Uh, you know, the, the Japan-Canada relationship uh, is very mature. Uh, it's, it's mutually rewarding, as I indicated earlier. But most of that, that trade occurs without, uh, nowadays, much uh, engagement from the top. So Canadian CEOs are uh, almost never in Japan. Uh, the one B2B mechanism that we have that has, you know, dedicated individuals at the top, Karen Beatty on our side, uh, and the global chairman of Mitsui, who's a heavy hitter on the Japanese side, met recently in Toronto. Okay? It was the first face-to-face -face meeting of this group in five years. That's partly COVID, but that's not the whole story. But here it was in Toronto. And uh, I don't think that there was a, a single um, uh, CEO from a major Canadian company uh, at that event. And it was the first in five years. And that was in Toronto. So it, this is not just a political issue. This is across the board where Japan, I think, tends to be too much of an afterthought given the weight that it has in the global economy and the opportunities it still holds for Canada. No, when you point out, you know, certainly what impressed me when I read your paper was, was just the sheer numbers that it, we tend to discount it in part because there aren't the, the trade irritants and things. We also, I think, sometimes see Japan as a like-minded middle power, but I kind of wonder, do the Japanese view us in similar terms? Well, it's a good point. I, you know, I think they probably would see us as like-minded and, you know, probably somewhere in the spectrum of middle power, uh, but they don't see us as an equal. And that, that actually can be uh, the source of some tension. You know, the reality, if you look at this through Japanese eyes, they know their economy is three times bigger than Canada's. Um, if you look at it uh, in terms of the trade relationship, well, Japan for Canada is, is number four. They're our fourth largest uh, export market. But flip that around, uh, and for Japan, Canada is barely in the top 20. Uh, we were 18, I think, the last time I looked. And Japan's self-image on the global stage is uh, one of a country that is far more consequential uh, than Canada, and they see themselves as being the number one uh, global ally of the United States uh, in what is now uh, the world's dominant geopolitical battleground. So we, I think, in Canada tend to look at Japan as a peer. We expect to be able to engage on an equal footing. But that is not a reciprocal view. And that, I think, leaves us perpetually disappointed that Japan isn't more engaged in the bilateral relationship. But, so I think the takeaway for us is that we need to understand that the, the onus will inevitably be on the Canadian side as the smaller party to the equation to supply the bulk of the energy uh, in, uh, and initiative in the relationship.
you know, Ian, one thing that's kind of struck me, and it certainly is the case with the United States, where the United States in the in our relationship puts the emphasis on security, trade comes next, but security trumps trade. We tend to put trade ahead of security, and I think we do the same with the Japanese, but my sense from talking with successive Japanese ambassadors to Canada, as well as yourself, is that the Japanese put much more emphasis on security. Part of it's the neighborhood and kind of look at us you know, and say, please, can't you get a bit more uh, more realistic? Or, or what, what do you think, what, what, do, what do the Japanese make of our foreign policy? So I think the unfortunate truth is they probably don't spend a lot of time thinking uh, or worrying about Canadian foreign policy. Um, but, you know, I think to the extent that they do, uh, and, and going back to what I said at the outset, they will see a country that is a G7 partner, a country that is fundamentally uh, aligned on values and interests, and one that can be supportive on uh, some of Japan's global priorities, on, on issues like climate change, where we do work together quite closely, for example. Um, but you're right. I, I think that they often perceive um, that the kind of issues that Canada focuses so much time and effort on can be uh, far removed from what preoccupies them. Uh, and, you know, we have to remember that this, this is a country that has North Korean missiles flying overhead, uh, China relentlessly um, probing at its frontiers, Russia now raising the specter of nuclear war. Uh, so, you know, as laudable as the priority we put on issues like gender equity and diversity and inclusion and so forth, at, at a time when Japan is faced with all of that, to sort of go in and over and over again focus on the importance and, and value of our feminist foreign policy uh, doesn't captivate uh, Japanese policymakers. They, you know, they're dealing with real world issues that are keeping their national security planners uh, up at night. I think we need to be a little bit cognizant of that and how we uh, frame our approach to Japan. Now, there's a lot of what we bring to the table that Japan does value. I, I want to emphasize that the support that we bring to the rules based order. Um, the contribution that we make to regional security, and we have been deploying frigates and, and air assets um, based out of Japan that are aimed at um, uh, uh, sanctions enforcement against North Korea. That's hugely valued by, by Japan. The insights that we bring into the, the political scene in the United States is a tremendous calling card uh, for, for Canada and Japan, as it is for you know, us in many countries around the world. And probably top of the list is the fact that we are a politically stable, reliable source of supply for the food, energy, resources, and other critical inputs on which Japan is a completely import dependent. So those are the real assets that we, we, we bring to the table. And we need to, I think, leverage those more effectively in, uh, in how we engage with Japan. Okay, now, I, I concur with your approach that we need to make the relationship a true strategic partnership. I, I also take your point about engagement starting at the top. And so take that as a kind of first step. If you were to sort of lay out, take the Indo-Pacific strategy, which is there, but to say the framework, but now we get into the blueprint side. And I, I guess I found your paper was the blueprint that was missing from the Indo-Pacific. But again, I can understand that because your papers is almost as long as the Indo-Pacific strategy. <laughs> Correctly so, because we should have that for each country. I mean, the, the that you make the compelling case why we need that. But I guess then I, so my question to you now is we've got the Indo-Pacific strategy. We agree that we've got to do more on the engagement side, particularly at the top. But then as you kind of go through what are big baskets, uh, trade and investment, uh, defense and security, the people to people sort of ties, would you make some suggestions in each of those three big baskets that sure. you would then take to, and, and your paper contains some of these, but I know the listeners will be interested. Yeah, no, I mean, that all uh, covers a lot of ground, of course. So we talked about the, the importance of showing up and the engagement, so I won't repeat all of those points. Uh, the next piece is that we have to belong to the tables, the clubs that matter in the region. And there are far too many of these clubs now where Canada is on the outside looking in. You know, for years, we've been talking about the fact that we're not a member of the East Asia Summit or some of the ASEAN mechanisms like the uh, ASEAN Defense Ministers Plus mechanism. I would argue that those are almost now less relevant than some of the other emerging fora or reinvigorated fora that really do matter. The Quad. I don't understand why Canada has not put its hand up to say that we want to be a part of the Quad. This is a grouping that has now expanded beyond traditional security and is uh, looking at things like uh, economic security, technological development, supply chain resilience, pandemic response, 
all issues that are right in Canada's wheelhouse. And you have now uh, South Korea knocking on the door to, to be a part of this. I, I, I just don't understand why we don't see that as core to our interests in the region and why we haven't long ago signaled uh, uh, our interest in becoming a part of that. And we can start by becoming more involved in sort of what they call quad plus mechanisms, where it's sort of the quad members with another uh, one or more other countries in, in involving uh, specific activities. But I, I, I see no reason why we haven't signaled an interest in becoming a full-fledged member. Uh, these are our like-minded. And doing so, by the way, would give us a platform for engagement with Japan in an area that, that really uh, matters. Uh, beyond the Quad, uh, you know, there's the AUKUS uh, grouping that has uh, uh, formed with uh, Australia, the UK, and the United States. Now, that has a more limited focus that, uh, at least in the first instance, is about equipping uh, Australia with nuclear-powered submarines. But frankly, and this is a whole different topic, you know, I think we as a country need to be taking our own national security far more seriously than we have been through stepped-up defense spending across the board at a time when we're practically at war in Europe, you know, and we have immense needs across the Indo-Pacific, we have uh, Arctic sovereignty under threat. Uh, you know, I think we should be um, at least reaching the, the NATO target of 2% of spending on, on uh, national defense. And that would allow us to do a, you know, much, play a much greater role in the Indo-Pacific as well. And I think we should be building nuclear powered subs to uh, enforce our uh, sovereignty in the North. And that would give us a basis for joining the AUKUS grouping. Um, and, yeah, but there are many others as well. There are a whole bunch of bilateral uh, groupings that have been formed in the region involving three, four or five countries that are focused on discrete areas of supply chain resilience uh, and others that are, are looking at specific aspects of infrastructure alternatives to China's Belt and Road Initiative. We don't belong to really any of those. Uh, the strategy that just got rolled out, I think, mentions one of them that we should be taking a look at. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're sort of missing in action across the waterfront on, on, on that score. So I think we should be uh, uh, taking a close look there. On the security, the, this, sorry. So, sorry, no, please, please continue. On well, security, so, I, yeah. I, <laughs> uh, look, on the security side, um, you know, it, it's great that, that we are uh, committing naval and air assets. Um, as I say, they're being based out of Japan to support North Korea sanctions enforcement. They're also training activities. That has actually expanded a fair bit uh, in recent years, and that's all to the good. We've also concluded what's called an acquisition and, and cross-servicing agreement, uh, an AXA, which basically facilitates the uh, ability of our military, uh, our militaries to interoperate. But uh, and, and the Indo-Pacific strategy commits to, I think, sending uh, one other frigate to the region for a few months each year. All that's to the good, but I think we could be doing uh, a lot more. And with a, with a much greater commitment to national security, we would have the equipment and resources uh, to do that. And that would uh, uh, convey uh, considerable credibility uh, to the eyes of the Japanese and others uh, in the region. And we also need to move forward with, uh, with, with new instruments, building on the AXA. Uh, and the, the strategy makes mention of a, a, a general security of information agreement. Well, that's nice, but you know that was a priority when I arrived in Japan six, year, six and a half years ago, and it kind of languished in the bureaucracy on our side. So good that it's finally being picked up again, but that would be the next step, which would then allow us to go beyond that to the kinds of instruments that the Australians and the Brits are talking to the Japanese about, reciprocal uh, access agreements and so forth. So you know, there, there, there's a lot that we could be doing. And I guess one last point I'll make is, that the term strategic um, uh, uh, relationship or strategic partnership sounds a bit bureaucratic, I know, in Canadian years, but it actually matters on the Japanese side. And having that designation would allow us to elevate our mechanisms with Japan that I mentioned earlier tend to be at lower levels. It would elevate them to the political level. So we would annually have an economic consultation with Japan at, at a ministerial level. We would annually have what are called two plus two meetings involving defense and foreign ministries on each side not at the deputy minister level, but at the political level. Japan has that with almost all of our peers in the region, but not with Canada. No, it's a very good point. And certainly I, I became much more sensitized to the strategic partnerships when we negotiated with the with the with, with Europe, the European Union. And in fact, it, the, the driver came from the British, interestingly enough. Uh, and they pointed out for almost the same kind of arguments you're making now, no, this allows you to do the following. And we feel this really important. And so while this was sort of to some seen as the tail to the Canada-Europe trade agreement, 
it has assumed a lot of importance in recent time, particularly around what's taking place in Ukraine and also on things like the pandemic. And uh, when you suggest a strategic partnership agreement, I thought what we've done with Europe, because the Europeans take it very seriously. Uh, we don't, for whatever reason, seem to place the same priority, and I'm not quite sure why, but I, I, I certainly take your point as to why these can be in the eyes of the beholder, in this case, the Japanese, this gives us additional uh, space and an opportunity to grow. And, and and they would take probably think that we're taking a relationship more seriously. And so for that reason alone, I think we go for it. And I go back and I think you were ambassador then when Prime Minister Abe came over and we, we signed the sort of began on the defense and security side, because that certainly was the driver from there. And I know that as you've just pointed out, we've acted on it. And I and, and again, success of Japanese ambassadors have emphasized to me that this is really important. And they're come to sometimes surprised that we don't seem to take it as seriously as they do. And they see it as an opportunity for us to actually do more with them, uh, which could also have economic spinoffs. All of that I agree with entirely. And, and the, the other point I'll note is that because the designation actually matters on the Japanese side, it enables them to commit the time and effort and resources to the relationship that they otherwise won't. Uh, and you know, mo perhaps most importantly, it forces the bureaucracies on both sides to take the relationship from time to time off autopilot, actually think about it and come up with some ideas to you know, animate these more structured dialogue mechanisms that would be at the political level. There's value alone in doing that. Well, and as you point out, it also gives you face time at the very top. And that's one of the challenges that, well, one of the, I think the, the, the deficiencies in the relationship for, again, all the reasons you point out, and as you observed during your five years as ambassador, that, that the, at both ministerial and prime ministerial, and again, you can make allowances for minority government and distance, but this is, as you point out, an important relationship. But, um, you know, I want, I want to take you away, just for away from security for a moment, because you spent a lot of your earlier part of your career on the trade side. And certainly when I looked at the surveys we've done, this government has put big emphasis on getting uh, women, minority groups, disadvantaged, indigenous, more involved in trade and small and medium-sized enterprises. The surveys that have been conducted all show that from their perspective, the easiest market to access is the United States. So I guess the question I put to you is how do we because you you looked at this over a period of time, can we at the same time help them make that transition to a Japanese market, which is, as you point out, a significant market? Well, I, you know, I sure uh, hope so. And uh, I, I thought that with the CPTPP in place, it really raised the profile uh, uh, of the market. Often when you have a free trade agreement, you know, a large part of the value is just by raising visibility of that market in the eyes of your own business community. Uh, so, you know, that, that was a, a labor of love for me. Uh, I was involved in trying to uh, obtain a state-of-the-art free trade agreement with Japan for much of my career. So I was absolutely delighted to finally see it uh, come to pass. Uh, and I must say it did so in the most remarkable of circumstances, because if you think about it, what it gave us in Japan was market access that reflected American negotiating leverage, which came from the TPP deal, which the Americans then took themselves out of because of Trump's decision to, to quit the TPP. So for a period of time, we enjoyed a phenomenal situation where we didn't even have to compete with the United States for the enhanced market access that reflected their leverage. So this was a golden opportunity. We knew it would be time limited. So we spent a lot of time and effort in the initial period after that agreement came into force, marketing it across Canada. Um, that came into effect in December 2018, and you know I, I embarked on a cross Canada speaking tour uh, the following February. Uh, how's that for dedication going across Canada in February to promote? <laughs> uh, I tell you, hardship very, very pay. few things. Hardship pay. <laughs> right. Well, very few things bring you back in touch with the country you're representing than a trip across the country. In February. <laughs> uh, but look, it, it was very well attended. There was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement in the business community at that time, and I have to say, Canadian companies did step up. Uh, we saw substantial increases in exports in the sectors that were liberalized by the agreement uh, before the Americans inevitably uh, closed down the, the margin of preference that we had. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason that Canadian uh, trade were proved to be so resilient in Japan during the pandemic. You know, at a time when it was collapsing around the world, our exports to Japan actually held steady. Um, so that was all encouraging, but I think you can never sort of declare a mission accomplished when it comes to 
promoting or marketing trade opportunities and trade agreements. As I was saying earlier, I think it's Japan is still too much of an afterthought for too many Canadian businesses. Uh, and for them, the message is the same as the, the one that I, I always carry to the political level, which is that in Japan, it's personal relationships that matter. Even if you don't have something that absolutely requires your personal attention, it's worth taking the time. This is now a Canadian CEO of a company that is vested in Japan to get on a plane and come over, uh, you know, once a year, whatever it is, to renew your personal relationships with your partners in the Japanese market. Uh, and so... Uh, I spent a fair bit of time um, sort of preaching that message, uh, but I, I think that that is a continuing work in progress. We can never sort of declare mission accomplished. I think there's a lot more actually we, we, we could and should be doing. And there are people like Goldie Hyder that are sort of carrying on that missionary work. Uh, that was one of the key drivers for, for the book that, that you know, he uh, and others edited. Um, but you know, I spent much of my uh, 34 years in, in uh, the foreign affairs milieu uh, preaching that message about the importance of the region and the need for Canada to get involved across the board. And it's one that I, I think remains uh, as important today uh, as it ever has. And, and, you know, particularly at a time when we're worried about the rising influence of China, we're worried about the economic dependencies that uh, that, that has created um, around the world. You know, we should be doubling down on the relationships we have with countries like uh, Japan uh, that share our values and our interests. The whole friendshoring idea, you know, has to put Japan at the center of it. If, if not with Japan, the third largest country in the world, with whom? Um, so, you know, I think that the, the potential uh, is, is huge um, and uh, we, we have to keep at it. Ian, we say a few words about Prime Minister Abbey. I've just finished uh, Kissinger's book on leadership and he looks at a variety of leaders, Lee Kuan Yew and Margaret Thatcher de Gaulle. Uh, but it strikes me that if he were to write it, if you were to do a new edition, he, he, you'd have to include somebody like uh, Shinzo Abe, who uh, all, I impressed me from afar, but you actually knew him. And it strikes me that we would never have got the TPP if it had not been for him. But he's also, as you know, in many ways, the father of another Japanese concept, the free and open Indo-Pacific. Absolutely. Uh, and he was a very uh, powerful uh, leader for Japan, a huge loss for the country and for the world. Um, you know, the free and open uh, Indo-Pacific concept, which is now kind of a widespread use, was very much an Abe idea. It actually goes back to a speech he gave in the Indian parliament during his first uh, time in power. I think it was 2006, 2007, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, it was called the confluence of the two seas, meaning the Indian and Pacific Oceans. And the whole idea behind changing the nomenclature, which uh, it might not be immediately apparent to some listeners, from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific is, of course, to pull India into the region as a counterweight to China, uh, whereas the old sort of Asia-Pacific model was very Sinocentric. Uh, and then adding the words free and open was intended to, you know, uh, emphasize the values um, that Western democracies share and offer essentially a counter-narrative to, to China. But it was pitched more as a vision than a strategy in part to sort of manage the relationship with China uh, Abe was masterful in uh, pitching it to the Trump uh, administration. Uh, you know, he, he enjoyed the best personal relationship of any Democratic leader with Donald Trump, which he cultivated assiduously, uh, in part because this, you know, was, was core to Japanese security interests. And from there, the, the FOIP uh, concept, free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, got traction not only in the region, but in Europe and South America and elsewhere. Eventually, Canada endorsed it. Um, and I think what, what uh, it really matters for Canada in all of this is that it remains, uh, you know, first under Suga and now under Prime Minister Kishida, it remains the centerpiece of uh, Japanese foreign policy. So it is the lens, frankly, through which it will assess the relevance of, of uh, foreign partners like Canada. So I think we need to keep that in mind. I am happy to say that we have put in place a, a bilateral framework for engagement with Japan that is focused on advancing the concept of uh, the free and open Indo-Pacific. It's referred to in the, the strategy just released by the government. But, you know, as with all of these things, it's very, it's relatively easy to come up with the framework and the idea they, that the challenge always lies in the implementation. Uh, and I think what needs to be um, watched and focused on is that we put the degree of effort, uh, resources, time, commitment, political attention uh, in actually advancing uh, the framework that we've put in place.
because it should be a no-brainer for Canada. These are, are values that are very much core to our own interests as we look out at the region and figure out how to address uh, the challenge that uh, that China poses to all of us. And you, you've made some very practical suggestions on the economic front, on on the sort of defense and security side, because the you know, Japan does have some real uh, problems with China and, of course, with North Korea. Um, are there more practical things that we could be doing? I, I seem to recall at one point you suggested to me that placing senior Canadian officers in with the, the Japanese military on a sort of, a, we would at least establish relationships or sending them to their defense colleges, which struck me as a good idea. But there may be some other things that you've seen first up that the Japanese would be receptive to that would also serve Canadian interests in the security and defense side and, and certainly bring more teeth to the free and open Indo-Pacific relationship that you've talked about. Sure, well, there'll be variations on the same thing, themes that I've talked about already. So, you know, I think that there needs to be re regular interaction between our uh, our defense ministers. Um, I think that we have the, the sort of beginnings, I would say, of, of staff to staff uh, talks and dialogue mechanisms. It's particularly advanced between the two navies, um, but there's more to be done uh, between the two air forces uh, and uh, uh, ground forces, um, embedding. Uh, you know, uh, officers in each other's services, I think, uh, can be interesting. I think that the two could be doing more in terms of joint training activities to build capacity uh, in the region, which would be right, uh, perfectly well aligned with the principles behind the free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, helping ASEAN and other countries sort of strengthen their own uh, defense capacities, for example. Uh, I, you know, I talked about the, the deployments that we've been making, but the reality that I think we, we could be doing even more uh, and I think that that should be a priority in terms of government funding. The legal instruments matter. Uh, as I say, we, we've, uh, we have the AXA. The, the information sharing agreement is important, not just on the security side, but it will also enable us uh, to be uh, more a part of defense uh, procurement opportunities in Japan. Uh, and that, you know, as I said, was languishing for about six or seven years. It's now been given a political kickstart and that was needed. Uh, so we need to get that done. But as I say, it's, it's one thing to announce all of these initiatives and laying them all out a nice looking strategy. It's another to actually deliver them. And one of the areas that I thought was, was weak, and maybe it's a bit unfair to burden a strategy with that, but there wasn't much there in the way of deliverables. And, you know, what are we going to look at five years from now to know whether this has made any difference? What, what are, how are we going to measure success? How will we know if we've actually succeeded in achieving things? It was pitched at a very high level. So I guess that's the next order of business. Uh, and hopefully it won't take as long to generate uh, that second layer as it took to come up with the first strategy in the first place. No, I do think the idea of some metrics is to what is it, because the heart of this, to me, seemed to be still trade and investment, and we probably need something, okay, here's, we would like to increase trade or investment by X, by such and such, because that I think it also gives people like yourself, uh, our heads of mission, uh, targets to 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 and work with business on it. I mean, obviously it's business that creates the business, but if 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 you're, if you're the head of mission is quite aware of this, and as you pointed out, getting business to come over and, and finding opportunities, I think is important. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll come back to the point I made earlier about uh, ensuring that we're at the, the tables that matter, because if you're talking about right. engaging with Japan on, on security issues, it would be a much uh, uh, better proposition if we were uh, part of a quad. Um, you know, they're not in AUKUS, but if, if we were to join that mechanism, it would also increase, increase our stature in the eyes of Japanese. It would all serve to underline that Canada is actually not just in the region to, to you know, uh, trade and make money, which is sometimes the rap that's thrown against us, but that we have a comprehensive view of uh, the region, and it includes a commitment to regional and global security, recognizing the importance that the Indo-Pacific now is uh, on all of those fronts. So in, in that sense, all of the objectives are kind of intertwined uh, and, and we help advance uh, each by advancing the others. Now, Japan and the free and open Pacific concept is now, as you said, fairly widespread and been endorsed broadly, particularly amongst the democracies. There's another concept that you talked about in your paper, which I found interesting, and that it's Japan's practice of balancing. Do you want to explain to listeners what balancing means in practice? Yeah, you know, I think that this uh, goes to the heart of uh, the conundrum that I think virtually all countries around the world, certainly the democracies, are, are now facing, which is, you know, how do you deal with 
the, the threat that China now poses to everybody's national security. And, you know, the, 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 the rationale for this abounds, right? If you look at its relentless uh, increase in military spending, uh, the clear intent to challenge the status quo in the region through, you know, uh, uh, ambitious, uh, uh, one way to put it, territorial designs in the East China Sea, the South China Seas, the overt threats across the Taiwan Strait, the meddling in our democracies, and on and on and on. So how does the world grapple with all of that without, you know, committing uh, economic harry-carry? Uh, and, and for Canada, it's, it's actually not as complex because, you know, our economic dependency is fundamentally on the United States. But for every other country uh, in the Indo-Pacific, including Japan, there's a much greater degree of economic dependence on China. So they have to be more skillful in terms of how they manage all of that. And so I, Japan's response has been on the security side to double down on the relationship with the United States. I mentioned the, the, the relationship that Abe enjoyed with uh, Donald Trump in that vein, uh, to work to reinvigorate the quad mechanism in order to pull India in as an essential counterweight to China to advance the whole free and open Indo-Pacific vision, all as part of a multi-layered scheme to manage the rise of China, but doing it in a way that was calculated not to uh, unnecessarily offend China. So, uh, you know, the, the free and open Indo-Pacific in its first instance started to be portrayed as a strategy, it started to uh, look uh, to many others as an anti-China uh, alliance. So Japan was very care careful to backpedal, to represent it as a vision uh, anchored in values that, you know, are much harder for anybody to, uh, uh, to criticize and to make it clear, as they did over and over again, uh, that it was open to any country that wanted to join it, including China. And, and all the while, while they uh, served to protect their security interests, they made sure that they didn't unnecessarily provoke China from the standpoint of managing their economic interests. So part of that you saw in how they finessed the, the, the free and open Indo-Pacific vision. Part of it was the decision that they made consciously to push RCEP, the you know, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, over the goal line. That was Japan's doing, even after India withdrew from that. Japan desperately wanted uh, India in that grouping so that it wouldn't be uh, so Sinocentric. In the end, uh, India wouldn't have it, but Japan made the strategic decision to press ahead with it, uh, even recognizing that it would be essentially dominated by China. So this, this is what I mean about how they have, uh, with some nuance, balanced their political uh, and economic interests. It's a very different proposition for Canada, though. Uh, given that, as I say, we we have more room to maneuver, ironically, with China, given that we're far less dependent on that country economically. We've been very reluctant to do so for reasons I don't fully comprehend. I think Canada actually should be more assertive uh, in defending itself, certainly from coercive actions at the hands of China. Uh, and, uh, you know, if even if you look at the, the trade relationship we do have with China, relatively small compared to every other country in the Indo-Pacific, and even that runs three to one in China's favor which, you know, to an old trade policy warrior spells leverage. But we've been very, very reluctant uh, to, to use it, even when we're getting smacked in the head by China. Uh, I don't fully understand why, and I would certainly be among those advocating uh, a more robust defense of our interests when it comes to China across the board. No, I, I think that makes sense. And I think that, you know, there are things we can learn from how Japan does it. Uh, accomplishing what it set out to do but at the same time maintaining a relationship which it has to do because if it's again i think china's still its biggest market isn't it yes um one of the things that impressed me when i was in japan a couple of years ago and you were kind enough to have you know, the family for breakfast at uh, the residence was you and somebody talked about people to people ties and you know, we've got that the, the the embassy to me really does location 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 and one of the things you talked about was student exchanges, the arts and culture side, which uh, uh, I was heartened to hear because it's always been close to me. Um, but the pump at the diplomacy side, are, are we making full use of that with Japan? And do we make full use of the potential of our location in Tokyo? Well, so absolutely, we have location, location, location in Japan. In fact, we have a physical platform in Japan that is the envy of all of our peers, including the United States. Uh, and a platform that I think is the most impressive diplomatic footprint that we have, we Canada have anywhere in the world, uh, certainly the most valuable. Uh, 
I would say in the pre-COVID environment, we were absolutely taking uh, full advantage of, uh, of those facilities. We were hosting hundreds of events between the official residents and the, the chancery every year, drawing somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000 visitors annually. So it ran at full tilt uh, and it was really exciting. Now COVID uh, obviously uh, put a jarring halt all of that. Uh, and, you know, one of my greatest regrets from my time in Japan is that all of the elaborate plans that we had put in place uh, in the context of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic and Paralympic Games all essentially came to naught. We were going to host the Canada houses of both events uh, at the embassy, and it was just going to be a fantastic um, period of time with families and stakeholders and political leaders and events every night. It was and, the, uh, the embassy is located just a stone's throw from the uh, from the, the national stadium. So it, it would have been fabulous. Uh, of course, we all know what happened um, with COVID. Um, the good news, I was back in Japan. Uh, I've been back several times in the last few months, most recently, uh, just a few weeks ago. And it, it is now fully reopened. Uh, the foreigners are uh, flocking back in. You're, you're, you see, once again, the sort of energy and vitality that one uh, always used to see in Tokyo. So that's all to the good. And, and I think, uh, so looking ahead, with the borders now uh, reopening, uh, our cultural programs, student flows, academic relations, uh, all of our public diplomacy efforts uh, should regain their former um, luster. But of course, it's always possible to do more on that front. And, and there are a couple of areas that I, I wrote about in the chapter where I thought we should be focusing our attention. Um, the expo in Osaka in 2025 is, is now essentially around the corner. I think we should, we were uh, actively represented at the first four in Japan, and I, I know we will be again. We should be, I think, making the most of that opportunity really to showcase our technological strengths, which are uh, still, I think, underappreciated uh, in Japan. Um, the whole area of youth exchanges uh, really took hold for me while I was in Japan because I saw how successful Japan's JET program is. Yes, uh, their uh, Japan uh, education exchange and teaching program. We, we've had uh, during the life of that program, 10,000 Canadian students come through that. And, and this has created lifelong champions of the relationship and of developing ties between the two countries. And they end up in all walks of life. We, we hire many of them at the embassy. Fantastic, far-sighted program. Uh, and I thought that, you know, we, if Canada were to reciprocate a program like that, we would have to structure it obviously quite differently. But something on that scale and, and with that level of ambition, I, I thought would have been a perfect centerpiece to a Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy. And, you know, I was happy to see that there was a modest top up for the scholarship program that we have with, uh, with the ASEAN countries, but quite modest, I think it was under 15 million bucks and limited to the ASEAN uh, markets. I, I, don't, I, I thought this is an area where we could go big uh, and really um, declare our intent to, to, to make some meaningful changes in terms of our profile uh, and level of engagement with the region. And the last one I'll mention because it's it's not that expensive, uh, uh, and I, you know it was a lost opportunity I thought in this strategy. It would be to restore funding for Canadian studies programs um, abroad, which were cut in in some previous um, uh, strategic review process. But I, I know that in Japan we have a dedicated group of academics who uh, used to get support from the Canadian government to, to promote Canadian studies in Japan, who have been pleading with the embassy for years to kind of restore it. It's not a lot of money, but it, it can have an outsized impact in terms of raising your profile. And it's an area where, again, all of our peers are uh, running uh, leaps and bounds ahead of us. Um, in Japan, uh, funds uh, the study of Japan, uh, including in Canada. They put a $5 million endowment into the Monk uh, School, U of T. So uh, this is an area where, again, it wouldn't, it wouldn't break the bank, but I think it could go a long way in terms of profile. Uh, uh, and so I hope to see it. I haven't yet, but as you say, maybe the Indo-Pacific strategy is a work uh, in progress, and we'll see that in some future uh, iteration. Well, here, here on public diplomacy, because to me that's part of the Canada brand, and it is one thing that we we should and have done in the past very well. And certainly, I, as you pointed out, you demonstrated this as our ambassador in Japan. Liam, this has been terrific. My final question, as always, I put to the participants in this uh, program: What are you reading or streaming these days? So, you know, uh, a lot of it is in my Christmas uh, ask list. So, unfortunately, I have to wait uh, for the moment to get it. But what okay, I'm well, you can, you can do, put it out because, you know, you may have family listening and uh, and, and others will benefit from uh, your what, what you're looking at. Ah, well, so uh, I actually want to read Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, autobiography. So, uh, BB's on the list. 
Um, but I'm also a big fan of Ben McIntyre. So uh, he has a new one out, Prisoners at the Castle. So I'm looking forward to, to that. Um, what I'm currently reading is a book called Invisible China. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is a few years old now. It's written by an academic from Stanford, Scott Rizel. Uh, the subtext is how the urban rural divide threatens China's rise. Um, and it's actually really interesting. I'm only halfway through it, but it, the, the basic thesis is that uh, chronic underinvestment from China uh, since the very beginning of uh, you know, the communist takeover, underinvestment uh, in education is what ultimately will hobble China's effort to break out of the sort of middle income trap that the authors uh, write about. That this is something that Xi Jinping has tried to reverse in recent years, but it's in their uh, argument, uh, probably too little too late. Uh, and that this, when you look, uh, compound it with China's demographics, is going to have a significant impact on the ability of China's workforce to adjust to the next level of development as the kinds of jobs that are currently performing in factories move elsewhere to cheaper locales like Vietnam and Bangladesh to move up to the next stream. They don't have the educational base to make that jump. And that that in turn is a recipe for political turmoil uh, that will be compounded by the country's demographics. They're going to get old before they get rich, I think is the expression. Um, anyway, fascinating book. I'm, I'm enjoying that, but I'm also looking forward to some of the other stuff coming. Uh, and from street, for the, the streaming uh, standpoint, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but the, the, the latest season of The Crown is high on my uh, my list. Yes, well, we, we just finished the, the last season of The Crown. It's it's a it, it's not uplifting. I'll put it that way. Although the acting is excellent. Uh, and so we've got BB on the list. We've got uh, Ben McIntyre. All his books are good. And yeah. uh, as you said, Invisible China. How fascinating. Um, some of my, I'm going to start uh, for in terms of streaming the Mac Heron book, who I'd read about mm -hmm. in the New Yorker, who writes very good spy novels, which I have not yet read, but I'm now having talked to enough people who do read them. That's on my list. All right, Ian, this has been terrific. Um, thanks for participating in this episode of the Global Exchange. Uh, listeners, we were joined today by Ian Burney, and I encourage you to read his chapter on Japan, as well as the other essays in the recently published The Indo-Pacific, New Strategies for Canadian Engagement with a Critical Region. The other essays are also excellent and written by including CJA Advisory Council member Meredith Lilly, for example, and edited, as I said, by uh, both Goldie Hyder and uh, Fenn Hampson and Tina Park, and Goldie and Fenn are no strangers to this podcast. Remember, you can find the CJA Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, do give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, and there's a lot there uh, on the website on the Indo-Pacific. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks, as always, go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for composing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. 